Good morning again. It's good to hear some of you guys are with it. That's good. Uh, Tom read to you what are known as the Ten Commandments, and that's our jumping off point today. If you have a copy of God's Word or an Exodus Scripture journal, it would be great for you to start in Exodus 20. Now, I'll tell you in advance, we're going to try to make our way through, in some way, uh, five chapters of Exodus today. And no, this isn't a special Sunday where we're going to meet for four hours. Uh, We have the normal time limit, and I'm going to stick to that. Uh, But we're going to be navigating a little bit differently than we have up to this point in the book of Exodus, and I'll explain to you why in just a few minutes. Um, We began last week with a new year, the fourth part of the book of Exodus, of our series in Exodus. And if you remember, we've broken it into four parts because the Bible kind of tells the story in four chunks. There's a lot of narrative in the first 75% of the book. And then beginning in chapter 19 through the end of chapter 40, more than half of the book, the last 21 chapters, that is sort of part four, if you will. So we started with Moses' origin story. That was part one. It's been almost a year ago that we jumped in with that. That was mid-February when we began the book. Part two, we saw, though the stage was set in part one, we saw the combatants, God and Pharaoh, enter the arena and go back and forth. Pharaoh with his wicked hard heart, God with his plagues that specifically and systematically dismantled the gods of Egypt. And then more recently, after the summer, we concluded part three, which dealt with the intervening months between when God set his people free, the Exodus itself in chapter 12, and the end of chapter 18. Those six or seven chapters, the people wander through the desert, they doubt God, he continues to prove himself. Each of those is narrative story. Now, when we arrive at part four, beginning in chapter 19, we get a little bit of story. That's where we were last week. God says some things, does some things. Moses describes his journey up and down the mountain several times. He ends up hiking this mountain about seven times in three days, which is pretty rigorous. But then God's going to speak for an extended period of time. In fact, up to this point in the Bible where we are beginning in chapter 20, God has not truly monologued like he does for much of the Bible. Now, you and I, if we grew up in church, maybe you did like I did, you're used to that concept. You're used to Jesus speaking for a long amount of time. If you have a red-letter Bible, you know that there's just pages and pages in the Gospels where Jesus speaks and speaks and speaks, seemingly with no breaks. But at this point, this stage of the life of Israel, God has not gone on and on and on. Briefly, he did with Abraham because he wanted to share a little bit of God's vision, his perspective on where he was going to take Abraham later in Abraham's life. But he's never addressed all of his people together in this way. And so in order for us to navigate that, in order for you and I to spend an extended period of time understanding what breaks down into hundreds of laws, we're going to approach and interact with these parts of the Bible a little bit differently than we have up to this point. I will not be preaching every single verse between Exodus 19 and Exodus 40, but I will address all of those verses. And here's what I mean by that. Instead of taking the time to read all of them out loud and go through and analyze the grammar and parse out what the original languages mean, we're going to take a look at themes, principles, and some of the strategy behind what God is saying and why he is saying it. There's still much for you and I to glean from these laws, but as I'll explain in just a few minutes, the way that the new covenant, the new testament of God interacts with these laws is very different from the way that God interacts with his people at the point that he gives them the law. So in human history, what's happening in Exodus 20 is a long time ago. Now, that doesn't mean that God is different. It doesn't mean that God's people are less civilized or or more archaic or that these laws are outdated. But when we arrive in the New Testament, as we're going to read in a few minutes, Jesus updates our understanding of what we're supposed to do with these. He explains how in the grand cosmic plan of all things, God delivered the law at a specific point. It did its job 
And now it's sort of passed the baton onto something new that you and I get to interact with and live under as New Covenant, New Testament believers. So to that end, we'll be taking on several chapters each week in order to address all of the things that may kind of come up, the necessary concerns. We'll probably spend two weeks per chunk of chapters. So to give you an example, today we're going to try to interact with Exodus 20 through 24. We'll do that again next week. We'll be in the same five chapters and we'll be kind of drawing out and talking about different other themes. And then in two Sundays, beginning on the 23rd, we'll move into the next three or four chapters. So before I say a bunch more of that to you and totally confuse you, I've got a slide to show you where we're headed. So if you'll take a look and see on the screen behind me, we're going to show you the dates and where we'll be. I'm showing this to you because I need your help. If you want to get the maximum out of these sermons, it will be immensely helpful if you would read ahead. Normally, we travel through books of the Bible at a rate where we're dealing with something like 20 verses or less. You don't need to have read ahead necessarily, but because I can't preach 90 minutes every week, I can't necessarily compensate for you not having a good working knowledge. So some of you are already doing it. I was going to recommend it anyway. Pull your phone out. Take a picture. That's probably the easiest way if you would do that. In addition to that, we are going to be posting on our social media every week to remind you what passages we will be in the upcoming Sunday And if your life group uses the life group questions that we send out via email, at the bottom of that document will be a reminder of the verses and chapters that we will be in the upcoming Sunday. And you're looking at this and you're probably going, what the heck's going on on March 13th? Well, you'll have to come to church on March 13th and you'll find out why we have to do chapter 31 in the midst of chapters 35 through 40. I promise, theming-wise, it goes together. God knows what he's doing. So So please read ahead. If you would, this is what I'm going to do. This may seem extreme to you. I don't know. I hope it doesn't. But I would try to read this once a day. Just make it your Monday through Friday. You can have Saturdays off. It can all flush out of your brain before you show up to church on Sunday morning. But in the the weekdays, take the 15 minutes it'll take you to read. The longest passage I'm asking you to read is what you're going to do this week to get ready for next Sunday, 20 through 24. Everything is shorter than that, and it will take you 15, 20 minutes to do it. So if you'll do that, excuse me, if you'll do that, we will benefit from that both together, and I'll be able to make references to certain themes and things that are happening without having to go all the way verse through verse by verse through hundreds of verses, which I frankly can't do. So let's come now to the text, Exodus 20, one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible, a critical, pivotal moment in the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments movie. It's the name of the movie, right? It's the one you've seen, the bearded man, the stone tablets. We don't know what they look like. We make them look like tombstones because we think that's probably what they look like, but they're gone now. Little known fact, Moses actually ended up breaking them. I don't know if you know that part of the story. We're going to get there a little bit later, but he was uh, pretty mad, and so he smashed them, and God had to make them a second time, which is pretty funny to me. But when we get to Exodus 20, we arrive at sort of the deep end of the pool of hard Bible passages. This is challenging. Right out of the gate, the second half of chapter 20 is God telling his people how to not and how to build an altar, a thing that you and I don't do. God says, don't use cut stone. Don't have, it have stairs that go too high. That doesn't make a lot of sense to us. We go into chapter 21. We get rules about what happens if somebody's ox runs you through with their horn. In some situations, you just kill the ox and move on. In other situations, somebody owes your family money if that ox killed you. It depends. There's laws about slavery in here. There's laws about what you do when people have children that are not married or what happens if a pregnant woman's baby is stillborn because another person runs into her in the marketplace or two men who are having a fist fight accidentally tumble into her at her table in the bar. It gets really specific. I'll give you some highlights. Maybe you're not sold on this. Exodus 21:17. the Bible tells us this. Whoever curses, or another way to translate that word is dishonor or reviles his father or mother, shall be put to death. How do we apply that? Does God want you to kill your kids? Because I promise they're snarky, all of them. 
No child has ever been born who was deeply honoring to their parents in every setting, right? So what do we do with this? You and I are still here, so somebody didn't obey this law. Exodus twenty-two twenty-five: If you lend money to any of my people with, among you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest. A New Testament Christian might ask themselves, is it wrong for me to have a mortgage? Should I ever take out a line of credit? What if I really want to get miles? Can I use the Alaska Airlines mileage card? Is that illegal in God's eyes? Exodus 23, 15, he says, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in that month you came out of Egypt. And none of you shall appear before me empty-handed. In other words, none of you gets to take this meal off. You better have unleavened bread in your hands for seven days so that I know that you're listening to me. Christians ask themselves, do we need to observe Jewish festivals, Jewish holidays? This is always really fun when we get to uh, Easter time because some Christians want to get together and do the Passover cedar meal and sort of act like it's still part of the covenant that we're under. I'm not saying it's totally meaningless, but this verse in part is why some people think they need to do that. Or Exodus 23, 19. God says, the best of the first fruits of the ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. I don't know if you've ever done that, if you brought your tomatoes or your squash or strawberries to church. And then he says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, which I don't even know. Is that a big problem? You know what I'm saying? Why does God, it's a lot of people with milk ready to, I don't know. So we have to figure out what to do with this. As New Testament Christians, here's what we know is true about us, and it should be. If we love Jesus, we want to obey him, right? Truly, That's what motivates you to be here on a Sunday morning. It's the reason you got up, you got dressed, you came, you served. There's a part of you that has allegiance to God. You want to do right. So when you read hundreds and hundreds of verses that tell you directly and specifically, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, what do you do? Do you have to follow them? The New Testament is rarely this explicit. The Apostle Paul often will tell us what not to do in worship or what not to do with our heart posture. But for God to describe what blend of cloth our clothing should be, or whether or not our dog should be on a leash or not, or our ox should eat in your pasture or mine, it's very specific. So we have to figure out how to navigate these kinds of things. That's the task before us in part four of Exodus. And if I can be honest with you, based on my appraisal, and maybe I'm wrong, but when I talk to people about these parts of the Bible, I think what most of us do with them is nothing. We just ignore them. To the point that we literally ignore them. When it comes time to read through this part of the Bible, when we read the Bible in a year, whatever Bible reading plan you're on, many of us don't do it. Or if we do, we just scan our eyes across the words and think about our grocery list and other stuff that feels a little more practical and real to us. We have to find out if we are supposed to follow these rules or not. And more than that, are we meant to try to model our society after these rules? If these are rules that God has for all people everywhere, if that's what we believe, which maybe it's what we're supposed to, maybe it's not, we'll get there in a minute, but if that's the case, is there even a responsibility on our shoulders to try to impose these things in our society, to make other people follow these rules, whether they swear allegiance to God or not? In order to answer these questions, we have to realize two significant differences between the Jesus-loving church of the New Testament and the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you two of these to write down, and these will help sort of function as keys that will unlock what parts of this law apply and what don't. The first is this. Old Testament Israel is totally different, completely different culture from America in 2022. So that seems obvious, right? You and I don't live in an agrarian society. Almost none of us have oxen or sheep in our home. 
So we, we can feel that a little bit, but I want to give you some liberty here. I want to give you a liberty that the New Testament is going to give you. Um, and I know for some of you, maybe your biblical inerrancy alarm is going off. You're worried that I'm about to tell you that none of this matters and we can throw it away and we don't need the Old Testament. I'm not going there. These are still laws. God still gave them to people. We have to interact with them somehow. What I am saying is that the weight that God puts on these in our lives as followers of Jesus is different. There's a different significance on them. Some of these laws are specifically guarding people against Canaanite religion. You and I live nowhere near Canaan, and if we did, today it's populated with all kinds of people. If, if we receive God's law in this form today, those laws would have to do with how to avoid the pitfalls of Islam. They would not deal so much with Asherah poles and the worship of Baal. So that's hard to apply to our lives. The laws that we read in chapter 22 are not about general manageable debt in order to buy a home. They're about a person going into debt because of their poverty and the way that people can take care of each other or not. Even the laws about slavery are meant to deal with just a fact of human life. The Bible is speaking into the culture of the Israelite people. It's not trying to teach them to have slaves. This is just a part of the world that they live in. And so what God's law seeks to do is to protect the lives of those people to speak and bring humanity from a divine perspective. The imago Dei, the opening words of the Bible are that men and women were made in the image of God. And so the law of God brings that into the lives of people who've been discipled by Egyptians for hundreds of years that if you own another person, they stop being human. Well, God has something to say about that. His perspective is very different. So you and I, we are dealing with a different culture, a culture full of things that are normal that would never be normal for you and I. The second thing we have to remember is that God's law was given under a different covenant than the one that governs Christians. This is old covenant. At the end of chapter 24, God reaffirms his covenant with his people. He says, I will do these things for you. You are expected to do these things for me. This is our relationship. These are the terms of how we interact. That's not the case now. We don't live under that same umbrella, that same banner. In fact, one of the most soul-crushing things that a Christian can do is try to participate in the Old Covenant or to try to put the bounds of the Old Covenant on other people. I made a reference last week that if we don't remember that God is intentionally relational, we will begin to use the law like a baseball bat. We'll begin to beat other people with it. That's how that works. If we try to take an Old Covenant idea and system and put it on other people, we will hold them to a standard nobody can, can meet. And will ultimately ignore the work and sacrifice of Jesus. In Luke 22, Jesus was asked to sum up the law. In fact, it was a trap question he was asked by a man who probably didn't want to follow him and was trying to prove him to be a false teacher, a false prophet. Jesus was asked, which law is most important? It's, it's, a, it's a fallacy. The way that it's asked is silly. But the guy is basically saying, if I can only follow one law, Jesus, which law should I follow? And Jesus says, well, that's easy. You should have asked me a hard question, but you asked me an easy question. He says the sum, the summary, the sum total of all of the law and prophets is that you would love God with your entire person. That's what God is getting at. And then if you can do that, the second commandment is almost equal with the first. It's very important that because you love God, you would learn to love other people in the same way that you love yourself. Now, that's not just a clever turn of phrase, and it's not Jesus eliminating any of the Old Testament laws. That is a lens that we need to understand what is happening in Exodus 20 through 24. When God explains how a slave ought to be treated, when God explains what happens when your ox gores your neighbor, when God explains how you give somebody recourse if their sheep come into your pasture and eat your grain, he's not so worried about there being perfect economic balance 
He's not even so interested in everybody playing, paying the perfect blood price. His idea, his purpose, what he's training and teaching his people to do is to love each other. So that's the lens. If you disconnect with any of these laws, it's because there's a massive cultural difference between you and them, but the heartbeat of God is the same. God is not just tinkering with home economics in these chapters. His desire is to teach human beings to love him, to honor him above all other things, and then as a result, to love other people, the people around them. The covenant that we are reading here in Exodus 20, this is the old covenant. It's the covenant Jesus will update when he tells his disciples at the end of his life, there is now a new covenant that I'm bringing. Before Jesus brings us to that point, this is the only covenant that stands. And this old covenant was written in stone. And I think God did that on purpose. Stone to me represents permanence. It represents longevity and strength. Though we now know the old covenant isn't permanent in all of human history, that Jesus brought in a new covenant for the lifespan of the nation of Israel. Before Jesus arrived and brought the gospel to all people everywhere, the representative nature of stone was good and right. It was helpful because the old covenant outlived generation after generation of people. And even though the specific laws in the law seem a little bit disconnected from the life that you and I live, they were incredibly appropriate for generations, thousands of years of Israelites. This law stays good and right and helpful for generation after generation. There's even periods of time where the law is completely lost. God's people have totally been wiped out by their enemies. They've been enslaved, carried off to other places, and finally they get to come back and rebuild their capital city and start rebuilding their nation, and they find a copy of God's law written on a scroll rolled up inside of one of the broken-down walls of the city. And as soon as they find it and open it, priests begin to explain what it means, and the people start weeping because this is what they've needed. They've needed guidance. They've needed law. They've needed a rhythm each of the previous three sections of Exodus, we gave a name. We called section one, You Can Run, because it's about Moses trying to get away from his life and then ultimately trying to escape from God once God calls him back in. We talked about part two in the terms of God versus Pharaoh because it was the big fight, the prize fight between Yahweh and the other gods of Egypt embodied in the person of Pharaoh. Part three, we called Stockholm Syndrome because all God's people want to do is go back into slavery. But the words that we're using for this part is we're trying to approach this as a liturgy of living. That's part four of Exodus. When we think of liturgy, we think of the way that church services are ordered, but what God is doing here is he is giving us rhythms of worship for all of life. He's taking people who are hell-bent in their own inner being, being totally focused on themselves, and he's rewiring and reshaping the rhythms and the motives and the movement of their life to be oriented onto him. God's law stays relevant to his people when they're in captivity as they wander in the desert through decades of war while they're occupied by their national enemies and even in the good times under the banner of a God-appointed king in Jerusalem. It doesn't matter what part of the Old Testament you open your Bible to, regardless of who is on the throne in Israel, God's law remains relevant and it remains effective and extremely helpful to God's people. It's only shortcoming, the only weakness of the law is that it can never reach the inner person. It can teach you how to do things. It can teach you what you should be like. It's diagnostic in every way. You hold the law up against your crooked and broken life and you can see what's wrong with you, but it doesn't have the medicinal therapeutic power to change you. And so in that sense, you and I need something more than just this law. That's what I mean when I say that the weight of the law changes when the new covenant arrives. 
The law answers many questions about good and evil, right and wrong, but it leaves one question hanging between us and God, and that is, what can we ultimately do about us? The new covenant arrives to answer that question. God's design is to finally bring a completion, full contact between his heart and our hearts, not just instruction, but true correction and transformation. According to both Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8, the new covenant replaces the law, which was written on stone, with a law that becomes written on our hearts by the Spirit of God, the inner part of us, our minds. The New Testament, excuse me, the new, yeah, the new Testament law giving by way of the Holy Spirit happens at Pentecost, and it's very similar. If you were to look at Acts chapter 2 and hold it up next to Exodus 20 through 24, in Exodus 20 through 24, God comes down to the mountain in fire and his people are afraid. They tremble. They're worried. Yet in Acts chapter 2, when fire falls from heaven, it falls on each of them individually. There is no smoke obscuring the fire. There is no thing keeping God's people from getting too close. Suddenly, the Spirit indwells the life of God's people. We heard Tom read the first 21 verses of Exodus 20 today. I want you to hear verses 18 through 21 again. Moses wrote this, When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid, and they trembled, and they stood far off. They took a big step back. I'm not sure if you've ever seen video of people who are in a natural disaster. You may have memories of the earthquake in 2018. An earthquake's a little different because you don't necessarily know that it's coming and you kind of just have to stay where you are and ride it out. But if you've ever seen people in a city when a bomb goes off or a building collapses or a tidal wave is coming, this is that moment for God's people. They can see something out in front of them that is communicating to them, if I get too close to that, I will die. And so their instincts, the animal part of their brain, kicks in and they take big steps back all together. Nobody has to turn around and go, hey, I think we should move back. It's a little too hot up here at the front. They just, they just step back because of what they've experienced. And then they yell to Moses, you need to speak to us. We'll listen to you, please. Please, can we deal with you? It's almost like if you grew up in a home with both parents you knew one parent would be softer than the other, typically, right? And so you might go to that parent to let them know you got an F on your report card. It's that moment. They're going, Moses, we want to deal with you. Dad is angry. You're kind of more like maybe mom in this situation. Can you be nicer to us and have a little more compassion? We will die if God continues to speak to us. Moses said, and this is so interesting, don't miss this language, do not fear, so put that on the shelf in your brain, for God has come to test you. Why? that the fear of him may be before you. Don't be afraid, be afraid. That's what Moses says. What does that mean? He's saying you don't need to be worried, you don't need to be anxious about the fear that you feel. The fear that you feel is right. You are having the right response to seeing God. You are having the right response to making contact with him. The God that is before you is holy, he is dangerously holy. Now he wants relationship, keep that in mind, but there is still something between you and him that you can't bridge on your own. That's Old Testament, Old Covenant law giving. Now here in Romans chapter 7, what the Apostle Paul says about Jesus' blood, he says, now we are released from the law, released, we've died to that which held us captive. So the thing that Israel was afraid of in Exodus 20, the Apostle Paul says it actually happened. We, we did die. You and I have spiritually died. This thing that used to loom and hang over us, the law that was so oppressive, the parts of our lives that needed to be oppressed by that law have died. How? He says, so that we serve now in the new way of the Spirit. We don't serve in the way of the written code. What is the written code? It's these laws. So the Apostle Paul seems to believe wholeheartedly and to have written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit into your Bible that a change has happened. 
that the way that you and I are intended to interact with the law is significantly different from the way that God's people interacted with the law in the Old Testament. You would even see this if you turn to Acts chapter 2. I don't have time to go there with you, but you might just write a note in your Bible or somewhere to go and look. There is joy in Acts 2 when God's people encounter God. When the Spirit falls and the fire comes and the law is written on the hearts of mankind, joy is the response. Why? Because the mediation of Jesus takes us from being people who need to be babysat by the law and somewhat oppressed and challenged by it to people who now have the law internalized and can live according to God's will and way. We become transformed in a way that the law could never transform us. The law by nature has to address really specific situations such that it could never equip a person to rightly navigate how to live life according to God's will in every area. There just won't be laws about cell phones. There won't be laws about airplanes. There won't be laws about lots of stuff that you and I deal with. More importantly, the law could never make a spiritually dead person alive so that they could navigate it. Even if God had given us a law for every situation in life, we wouldn't be able to do it without being made alive. So what do we do? Here's my answer to that question. The way that you and I interact with the Old Testament law is we learn from it, but we don't submit to it. There's your paradigm. We learn from it, but we don't submit to it. I'll give you an example of how this happens. When you and I were children, we lived according to all kinds of do's and don'ts, right? Our whole existence was made up of that. I mean, I think almost every memory I have of, as a kid is my mom or dad telling me, go to your room, that's a do, or don't touch that, that's a don't, or do a better job at school, that's a do, or don't touch that, that's a don't. Most of that back and forth in my life. I have a six-year-old. I can tell you about 90% of her existence is me having to tell her, yes, you can do that, no, you can't do that. And we try to be somewhat hands-off parents and let her learn from her own decision-making, but she asks all the time because the world is new and she doesn't know how to navigate it. Now that I'm an adult, I don't live like that. Nobody follows me around and says, do that, don't do that. I don't need long lists like that. I don't need another adult to police me or govern my decision-making. Now, we could ask ourselves, is that because do's and don'ts are silly? Is it because they're foolish or useless? No, it's because they did their job. I have now internalized the principles that the law of my childhood was trying to teach me. I don't need to be handheld like that because what was external and imposed upon me by my parents has now become internal and a part of the way that I think and live. Those do's and don'ts equipped me, they prepared me, and often they preserved me, especially the ones about not running into traffic and not eating poison. They kept me alive. By internalizing those principles, I've now outgrown my need for that kind of restrictive, specific law. When we choose the way of Jesus as New Testament Christians, the law of Moses is no longer necessary for us, not because it's not necessary for anybody anywhere, but because by the Spirit of God, we've now internalized God's will. So we've progressed to a point in human history where we are under a new covenant, and the do's and don'ts of the Old Testament law are not necessary because the Spirit of God can now dwell in us. And instead of having to open the Old Testament on a Sunday or a Saturday, if we were Old Testament Jews, and comb through lists of laws to make sure that we're living our lives according to God's will, we receive revelation from God by His Spirit. He illuminates the whole Bible. The writings of the apostles, the gospels themselves, they teach us these principles of life living. Earlier in the book of Romans, before what I read to you earlier in chapter 7, chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says this. This is his connection between Old Testament law and New Testament law of the heart. He says, circumcision now is a matter of the heart. 
Well, that doesn't mean we have open heart surgery. We're not talking about doing to our physical beating heart organ the same thing that happens to male genitalia when Old Testament circumcision happens. He's speaking in a spiritual figurative sense. He says now it's by the spirit and not by the letter. Now, everybody who grows up in church goes to youth group at some point and reads this verse and goes home and tries to wave it in their parents' face, right? It's not the letter of the law, it's the spirit. Maybe not, maybe you guys were not snarky like I was, but my dad worked at church and so I thought maybe the Bible would help me convince him to let me have more freedom, so I tried that. But the, the point of this is that the law of Moses doesn't apply to Christians in the same way that it applied to Israel. For example, both Exodus 20 and 23 deal with keeping the Sabbath as part of the law. God says you have to do this or I'll kill you. You will die if you don't take the seventh day off. Yet in Romans 14, Paul wrote this. He said, one person esteems one day as better than the other, while another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, like the Sabbath, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. It is your orientation around God that decides whether or not your actions are or are not okay. There is an element now of you and I being able to follow our conscience as governed by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying all people everywhere in 2022 are equipped automatically to navigate life the right way. The linchpin in all of this is that we are trying to follow Jesus. That's the necessary step. But what this means is people who don't observe a Sabbath now are not under the penalty of death. We can become legalistic about that if we're not careful. We can either decide that those who swear by the Sabbath are somehow stuck-up Pharisees, or those in that camp might look at those who don't observe the Sabbath and assume that they are lazy or ignorant or even evil. The New Covenant does not give us room to do that. What this means is that the law that we live by is now written on our hearts by the Spirit of God. If we live to love God and we live to love our neighbors, which Jesus said was the point, then all kinds of things become permissible. The bottom line is that for the born-again believer, the essence of life can never be law-keeping. The essence of life can never be rule-following. That was the way of life of the Pharisees, Jesus' only real opponents when he was on earth. We may keep many laws, we may follow many rules, there may be wisdom in that for us, but only ever as a side effect of loving God and loving our neighbors. That is what God is teaching us. So why then, here's my question, and this is where we'll land the plane today, if the law of the new covenant is meant to lead us into fuller and deeper life, If these Old Testament laws, believe it or not, as arbitrary and menial as they may seem, are actually intended to make your life fuller and richer and better, why do most of us cringe, or at least clench to some degree, when the law gets brought up? Why, when we read these things, do we struggle so much to connect with them? Why is it so hard to make ourselves do just a little bit of historical archaeology and understand what's going on in this culture? Well, I think the way that we think about laws, whether they are God's laws or just the laws of the land where we live, are most powerfully shaped by our first encounter with human law. So I'll tell you about my first encounter with human law. I've been a pastor at this church now over three years. I don't think you guys are going to fire me. Uh, So I can tell you a little bit about my, uh, we'll just use the word shenanigans uh, when I was 15. Uh, I loved airsoft guns. If you guys don't know what airsoft guns, we used them, I think you're supposed to use them for target practice. We used them as like a poor man's paintball. We just shot them at each other. We didn't wear goggles. We should have. I'm just telling you. That was a mistake that we made. But what we would do is we would save our allowance, us 15-year-olds who had our provisional driver's licenses, and we would drive out to the woods in East Texas, and we would pick teams, and then we would just shoot each other for a couple hours, and then we would go home because we ran out of BBs or we had too many welts on our body. 
Because in paintball, when a paintball hits you, everybody can see it. But in airsoft, you just shoot each other until it hurts too bad. And then you're like, I'm done, I'm done, I thought I was out, I thought I was out. Okay, so one Saturday, we decided to get up early and do this. And we picked this new stretch of woods, because we like to mix it up a little bit. You know, you can't fight in the same woods all the time. So we found this stretch of woods behind these houses in sort of a nicer part of town. And we didn't realize, but this is all kind of retired couples that lived here. So I tell you that so you know these are people who are awake on Saturday morning, who are like on their back porch. And so one lady was outside, and I don't know if we like shot too close to her or we shot her pet. I don't know. We did something that she didn't like. And so she called the police. And an important factor in this, I guess, that you should know is when you buy an airsoft gun, because it's not a real weapon, they have an orange tip on the end. But that's so lame, right? Nobody, if you're playing, in the, it's a dead giveaway. If, I, if there's a little orange circle, I know right where you are. So we would immediately either spray paint them black or break them off as soon as we got them, which is highly illegal. That is not a good idea. So this lady called the police thinking there's a bunch of unsupervised adolescents with handguns in the woods. So we're playing, right? It's really fun. We're hiding in the woods, shooting each other. And all of a sudden, this police car comes tearing down the road. I mean, lights on. I think this guy probably knew that we were playing with airsoft guns because there were no gunshot noises in the woods, but he really let us have the whole show. He came screaming in in his cop car, jumped out, had his hand on his gun. He runs into the woods. He ran two of my friends down. They tried to go, and he got them. And so, like, the rest of us are just in the woods behind trees. We're like, if we just wait, he'll leave. He doesn't know, I mean, maybe he got our, I don't know. So we're just waiting. Finally, he's like, I know you guys are out there. You better come out now. And we were like, okay, yes, sir, okay. Like when I walked over to where he was, one of my friends was on his knees, like in front of the police officer, just like this. He was just like, whatever you need me to do, I'll do now. You're the boss. And another friend was just like crying. He's just like on the ground, like, my mom's never going to let me out of the house. So that was kind of the last time that we played um, Airsoft, if you can imagine why. Here's the deal, all right? I knew that there were laws before that Saturday morning. I knew that, totally. You, I mean, I knew I didn't need to speed, et cetera, et cetera. I went to driving school, whatever. I knew there were laws. But I did not know the law personally until I encountered an officer of the law, a person equipped to actually exercise his authority in my life. And from then on, this is what that did to me. He was right. I was wrong. I want to make sure you know that I know that that's the way that that went. We shouldn't have done the things that we did. But because I was a selfish egomaniac at 15, my impression of the law, pretty much from then on until Jesus fully saved me, was that the law was kind of there just to rain on my parade, to oppress me, to get in my way, to keep me from having fun. And so when I finally reached a point in my life where I began to look at God's law, that was my perspective too. It just sounds like God is trying to handcuff everybody and keep everybody from having any fun. Who are we really hurting? What's the big deal? But here's the, uh, the question on the other side of that coin. What's the alternative? If God doesn't give us law, are we supposed to just be in charge of each other? Has that ever gone well? Let's just zoom in on the context of Exodus 20. Let's think of the Israelites. They just finished being governed by other people. Did it go well for them? No. In fact, the religious system of Egypt was co-opted by the religious leader of Egypt, who was also the political leader of Egypt, who was also the military leader of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And as he consolidated power, things only got worse for the other people around him. You and I, as Western people, are tempted to approach these laws as if they are boring or oppressive or irrelevant. We have to remember when God is giving his law to his people in Exodus, he's speaking to former slaves. These are not self-aggrandizing, highly empowered, overly entitled American sycophants. These are highly oppressed, totally dehumanized victims of racist genocide. 
They don't receive the law as getting in the way of their plans. This law speaks life to them. Here they are standing in a massive crowd around the bottom of Mount Sinai, listening to Yahweh speak the foundation of the law, the Ten Commandments. To Israel, these Ten Commandments represent liberation and emancipation in their lives. The law is not a cruel overseer out to get us by limiting and destroying the fun of our freedom. The law speaks protection. The law speaks dignity to the oppressed. So if I can, I just want to briefly walk you through the mindset of what it would look like for people to rule themselves. We'll use Egypt and the Pharaoh as the model. Hopefully you can see this, but I'm going to read these if you can't. And then I just want to try to highlight for you what just the Ten Commandments do to set God's people free. In Egypt, this was normal for the Pharaoh and the elite to have complete power over others. That's sort of the, the, the cornerstone of Egyptian society is the Pharaoh himself and his power. After that and under that, other powerful people have learned to use religion to keep themselves powerful. And I'll give you a trigger warning here. This is going to begin to sound more and more familiar if you've been a part of the evangelical church in the West very long. In Egypt, there is no such thing as too much production or consumption. It's unlimited. You should make as much as you can, you should sell it all, and then you should consume as much as you possibly can. In Egypt, the vulnerable were exploited and overworked. Family roles and family rhythms were under constant assault. They were seen as archaic, as outdated, as irrelevant. In Egypt, powerful people could abuse and even kill the weak without recourse. There was no defense for those people. In Egypt, the weak were vulnerable to even economic exploitation. And in Egypt, the weak had no effective legal protection. That's the world of Israel. That's what they're used to. That's what's normal for them. Now, here's what Yahweh's law does. God's authority, this is the first commandment, God's authority prevents anybody else from claiming or attributing complete power to themselves or anybody else. Maybe you've never interpreted it that way. God's not just saying, everything's about me. He's saying, everything's about me, and it will never be about anybody else. So nobody else gets to have supreme power but me. Under Yahweh's rule, a God who has no image can never be co-opted. You can't stamp his picture on t-shirts and hats and sell them to religious people. And a God whose divine name can never be stolen from him can never have his name used for gain. If you grew up hearing that the third commandment was supposed to keep you from cussing, the third commandment was massively undersold to you. The third commandment is for people like me, who stand on a stage and tell you what God thinks and what God wants. People who have TV shows and TV networks and write books and try to convince you that God wants a thing that's outside of his character. Our God says it won't work, and it's one of the fastest ways to find yourself under God's condemnation. Under God's law, the Sabbath intentionally limits both consumption and production. And every capitalist in the room went, ooh, I don't know about that. That's the fourth commandment. All are now guaranteed rest under the protections of the fourth commandment. The reason the fourth commandment says, you shall not work and none none of your servants will work, is because humans go, okay, I won't work, but the servants are going to keep working because they're not really people. God goes out of his way to protect the vulnerable in this new economic system. According to the Sixth Commandment, human life is unequivocally sacred. doesn't matter who you are, whether you were bought or sold or gored by an ox, your life has value. That's a new idea. The Fifth and Seventh Commandments work together to demonstrate that respect for parental authority and marital integrity are meant to govern the family. These are guiding principles, and they're worth planning and scheduling your days and your rhythms around. The Eighth and Tenth Commandments tell us that the weak ought to be protected from the greed and deception of the powerful, a thing that human beings have never been able to figure out on their own in all of human history. And finally, the Ninth Commandment creates a judicial system. It establishes a judicial system 
that is both impartial and integral to legal recourse. This is the birthplace of the idea that if someone wrongs you, you can appeal to a higher power and be repaid. That's called justice, and it's God's idea. Where God's people come from has marked them. It's prepared them to follow blindly. God is giving them a system to execute on. You and I may feel like the law is handcuffing us. What God is doing is actually empowering his people to bring heaven to earth. That's why this is a liturgy. It's not just law to restrict you. It's rhythms to inspire real life. Boundaries that cause you to care for other people. Boundaries that prevent you from dumping all of yourself into anything. Because God always gets a piece of you. The most important piece. Boundaries that protect from unfair economic systems on a national scale. Boundaries that protect people who cannot speak up for themselves. When we get to the New Testament, and all the New Testament writers, including Jesus, speak up for the weak and speak up for the oppressed, it's not a New Testament idea. From the point that God's people are born as a nation, God is seeking these things among his people. And this will remain the standard of righteousness for every king, every prophet, every person that will ever lead God's people. This is what they will be held up to. So what do we do with these laws? We listen to them. They teach us. They coach us. We do not have to submit to them. They do not rule us. Christ rules our hearts by the Spirit of God. But these laws still have much to speak into how human life should operate. You can think of it this way. Eventually, you and I will be in eternity with God. When we arrive there, our lives can either have closely matched that while we were here by knowing God's law and following him, or they can have been wildly different and we will be shocked and disappointed when we walk through the gates. Christians are always singing about going to heaven. I think a lot of them wouldn't like it that much there. It's pretty different from the way they live their lives down here. What God is doing is putting our eyes on him and then putting our hands and our feet on each other in a way that is loving and caring and careful to build Christian community. That's the intention even of the law. So you might not have any goat's milk in the fridge that you're planning to boil. You probably don't own a bloodthirsty ox. But you do have neighbors. You do have people that are near you who deserve respect and honor, who ought to be treated right. You do live in a system that, in theory at least, a judicial system that's supposed to create integrity and equality and justice. National laws that ought to be held to probably a higher standard than some of us have. What you and I have to do is we have to listen to these laws, never submit to them, never rebuild the legalism of Pharisees and Sadducees, and remember that as new covenant believers, Jesus now is our example in all of life. So be with him, listen to him, follow him. He will teach you how to live, and the Spirit will write these laws in your heart. I want to pray that for you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for two testaments in your Bible. I don't think I've ever been more thankful this week. Uh, than I have, well, ever th- more thankful than I have been this week, God, for, for just the expansion that Jesus brings to so many of these concepts. God, especially the book of Romans, thank you. I don't think we often thank you for your word, and I appreciate it. It's, it's good. It's right. God is a gift to us. I hope that we will spend time trying to navigate these laws and learn from them to glean what's good, God. Maybe a way to think about this is to eat the meat and spit out the bones a little bit. May you guard us by your grace and mercy from becoming entangled in law-keeping and rule-following for its own sake. God, let us remember the point, according to Jesus, is to love you and to love each other. May that be our perspective, our expectation as we navigate these things. Be with us, God, as we are one church in two locations. Be with us as we are in a challenging group of chapters in the Bible. We need your mercy, God, and we need unity. We trust that you'll do these things. We know that you love your church and we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.